Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Today, I'm honored to be joined by my guest and an old friend, Dr. Paul Stoltz, who is the founder and CEO of his business, Peak Learning. I'd lost touch with Paul over the last few years, but given what is going on in our world, I was definitely compelled to reach out and ask him to join me for this show. Many members within the RAIN community will remember Paul for the coach and leader, the guide he was to them, and perhaps recall the introduction and training of his work around facing and harnessing adversity, which was the adversity quotient. For those of you who have not had the opportunity to discover and learn who Paul is, I believe you're in for a real treat, as this conversation is a perfect point of entry to discovering his amazing body of work and the tools, for which there has likely never been a more relevant time than today in our world crisis of COVID-19. I'll begin by sharing just a very brief background of such an extensive and impressive bio for Paul, who was voted by HR Magazine as one of the top 10 most influential global thinkers, by Executive Excellent as one of the 100 most influential thinkers of our time. He was selected as Thought Leader of the Year in Hong Kong and Millennial Thought Leader in Singapore and is considered the world's leading authority on the integration and application of grit and resilience. He is author of five international best-selling books on the subject, printed in 17 languages, including the top-selling business book in China and his newest book, Grit, which is the new science of what it takes to persevere, to flourish, to succeed, 
where he pioneers the first validated construct and method in existence for growing both the quantity and quality for one's grit. He has served as faculty for MIT's acclaimed entrepreneurship program and for Carnegie Mellon's Distinguished Global Leaders Program. Harvard Business School has adopted and integrated his adversity quotient tools and methods into its top-rated MBA and executive education programs and is also featuring his newest work on grit in a new video series for Harvard Business Review. Listen in as Paul and I catch up a bit, discuss facing adversity, grit, resilience, how to apply it in these trying times of COVID-19. Enjoy. Paul Stoltz, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Old friend, good to see you. Really great to see you. It's great to get reconnected in these adversity-rich times, oh, isn't it? Oh my gosh, isn't it crazy? Now, many listeners, wow. uh, former or current RAIN members and uh, past RAIN members and and just the overall community, uh, recall you. Your name comes up often with the RAIN community in the work that you did years ago and is stuck mm-hmm. with people. So uh, excited to be on this call at this time with the leader in adversity and... Uh, understanding how to get through it. So thanks again. Oh, kind of you to say so. And just a big warm hello to the entire RAIN community. I have nothing but the fondest memories of all of you and our time together. And and congratulations on the way you've morphed, grown, and uh, adapted, which is, of course, a <laughs> big word right now, it is, um, isn't it? to the modern times in, in a way that's really helping you flourish. It's exciting to hear the good news. Yeah. And, and so, Paul, you know, the way I want to start out with this is because as many people do know you, Many don't, uh, you know, uh, and so I want to give a little bit of background. So tell me if, you know, I always, I always kind of preface it by saying, you know, in your, in your 30 second elevator pitch, if somebody walks up and says, so Paul Stoltz, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? And I'm sure it's even shifted a little bit these days. (laughs) (laughs) What I usually say to them is say, well, let me ask your, answer your question with a question. What if you could do one thing, which is to be able to understand how well you currently and could measurably improve just how you respond to and deal with adversity. How big of a difference would that make in your life? And they usually go, well, huge. And I go, yeah, I'm that guy. (laughs) You're the adversity guy. (laughs) Let me show you how to do that. And and so in the work that you've done, you know, I go back to one of the tools that I still use, which is core. What can you control? What do you own? Uh, the reach and the endurance. Can we start there? Is that a good place to start in this conversation? I want you to lead that part of it, I think. Uh, it might be a tool that we could talk about later, but where do you want to start yeah. in, in the face of adversity, giving what's going on, not just in COVID, because that, I mean, COVID is a crisis that everybody's now facing and it's going to impact. It's forever changed the world. Would you agree with that statement? It really has. And so, you know, in our hands, we have the question of how. For us, of course, how, in what ways personally, in what ways professionally, in what ways collectively. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely captivated by influencing that in every positive way that I can because I have the privilege of being the guy that I am. 
um, but also in in sort of tracking and observing and researching that, and and just helping equip people to be able to to really harness that, which you know is one of my favorite words. I mean, you know, for context, as I think about the people listening to this, you know, as you're sitting there and you're welcoming me into your your skull and your home, as you listen to this podcast, I mean, a little bit of context is probably helpful. I, for those of you who don't know. I'm probably one of the weirdest people you'll ever meet because I've actually spent the past 40 years of my life absolutely obsessed with trying to decode what I would call kind of the bedrock of human endeavor. So, you know, if you think about it, I mean, even a lot of these podcasts, right? You ask people about what their tips for success are, or if I asked all our good friends to the North up there, you know, tell me what would be the five things, like if a kid came up to you, and said, tell me the five secrets of success or the five things I need to grow inside myself to be a successful person. What's really interesting, and we've done that research all over the world, 137 countries, the answers to those questions, depending on how you formulate them, are incredibly similar. They're very universal. So the, my question has always been, well, if we know those things, why don't we do them? Let alone live them and grow them every day. And it's almost like healthcare, right? I mean, how many people know what they're supposed to do for their health? But dot, 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 you know? So my obsession has been what undergirds and fuels all those things? What radically enhances the chances that you become that? And that's what led me to this journey of this big revelation. Now, decades ago, I've been doing this work 40 years, had peak my company for 33, which was this big aha, which is it seems to come down to this human interface with this thing, let's call it adversity. And it turns out the whole human narrative, our individual stories, our family stories, our communities, our country stories, civilization stories, come down to what we do with adversity. Good or bad, by the way. Mm -hmm. So the greatest, greatest good and the greatest evil have spawned from that interface. So I thought, gosh, I'm an obsessively practical nerd. You know, it's great to kind of have this theoretical discovery. But what if you could actually measure that? Like if we have a thing called an IQ, maybe there's a thing called an AQ, you know, an adversity quotient, like a measure of how you respond to and deal with adversity. How huge would that be? And then more importantly, once we found that was way more valid and reliable than we ever imagined in, in the research we were doing, the big part is, can you measurably improve this? Like, can you permanently rewire and strengthen that single most important thing, which is what you do with the tough stuff? And, you know, I think it's super practically. I mean, Think about your relationships, right? And the people you even do business with or your family, friends. If I said, think of the person you would trust most in adverse times. Like, who do you, who do you know that you would just go, he, him, her, that person is the one who just rises up and shines when adversity strikes every single time. And if I said to you, not who do you like the most, but of the people you do like, Who's the one that is most likely to be crushed when adversity strikes? Well, there's a pattern of response there. And so being able to measure and strengthen that is huge. So, you know, for context, for everyone listening, just, just pause for a moment and just ask yourself, what if 
in addition on your IQ and whatever EQ you might have, that as a young child, you were roaming the planet and the influential people in your life helped you hardwire this thing called an AQ, your adversity quotient, this hardwired pattern of response to adversity. And what if at least till this moment, you've been basically living with that thing your whole life, unchanged, by the way, AQ is insanely consistent. So now you go to your question, you go, well, we're the guys who have measured the AQs of more than a million people around the world in 137 countries in all walks of life, you know, from Olympic athletes, which of course your wife Stephanie's involved with and, and all the way in top CEOs and leaders down to just everyday students and frontline workers and factories and driving trucks. And when you do that, wow, do you learn a lot of stuff? And so what I'm so excited to talk about today in this moment for our planet, this unprecedented adversity, is how do we just go right to the top of the ones who have the highest EQs and say, what are they doing that all of us can begin to mimic and master right now to have a radically better experience and outcome with this pandemic? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been just besieged with requests about is helping individuals and organizations around the world devise what we call kind of your core response or core strategy for how you're going to not survive, not cope, not even manage, but truly, truly, truly harness this adversity, which means use it to come out better because it happened. And, you know, Patrick, hey, man, you were telling me a story like that just before we got started, right? Mm -hmm. About rain. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't you say that rain has sort of harnessed its adversity? I think, yeah. And and I, I believe we have. And as a matter of fact, it's we're, we're taking it on in, in the most impactful and powerful way that we possibly can, given the circumstances. And as importantly, is that we're using it as an opportunity to help rain members rise. In other words, how can we support you in being the leaders? The world is crying for leadership and is searching for leadership. And I've always believed that rain members, just the nature of what they do and how they are and the involvement that they take on in their, you know, building their financial futures and investing in real estate, but also supporting others. So I think, you know, for rain, it's really for us as a team, we really want to continue to elevate not only us, but the whole community, because we believe the world is going to be crying for leadership. And, you know, when I, awesome. when I look at what you're, what you've done in the past and why I'm so excited to reconnect with you, Paul, at this time is because I understand AQ, you know, to the degree I do, I did a lot of work around it. You know, when you say, can you improve AQ? I thought I actually did the AQ test and scored very high, but guess what? I took it I know that I've taken, if I took that test today, it would even be higher. Like it would be more real mm -hmm. and relevant to me. And what I love about the work that you've done and for people listening to this is that the work that Paul's done is you said it, you know, 130 some countries and, you know, a million people. This is an anecdotal. This isn't a guy who, who has this, you know, altruistic view of the world. You have done the research. You've got the data to back it. This is really quantifiable in assessing your own performance or somebody's performance and who you are, because you don't know, you know, you know it's like you, you, the language is, of course, all telling, right? You've had the conversations that I've had, you know, how are you doing? 
well, we're coping. We're doing okay. Like we're coping with what's happening right now. Well, that's a whole different view of the world than somebody who says, how are you doing? You're going right now. We're doing awesome because we're seeing this and there's opened up a whole bunch of opportunities and we're taking this on and we're growing. We're looking into the future and we're excited about what it has. We're dealing with the shit that we got to deal with because, you know, it's hitting the fan all over the place, but we also see Mm -hmm. where we're going to come out the other side, you know? So that's, what's really interesting about the work. And I love that. Uh, I don't want to step over the the point that you've written. How many books, Paul? I've written five. I've written five books. And, you know, Patrick, here's the crazy part. And just it's an indicator of how global this is. So as you know, I mean, the first book came out in 1997. Okay. What is that? 23 years 23 ago. 23 years ago, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, which, and that was after... decades of already doing research and everything else. So that book comes out. And last year in 2019, a publisher in China reaches out and says, hey, you know, we would like to publish your first book in Chinese. And I'm thinking, okay, fine. You don't need to between us guys. I mean, you never make a penny off these kind of foreign rights. You just do it to be too good and reach more lives that way. Mm. So I do a light revision for them and send it to them and forget all about it. Well, that book became number one in China <laughs> in 2019 wow. and 2020, Wow, which is insane. I mean, if I had known, I would have worked harder, right? Yeah. But the, <laughs> which, uh, which book but, was that? Was that uh, the Adversity Quotient? Adversity Quotient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the first book. So Everybody needs to get that, that book, by the way. Everybody needs to read that book. Oh, you're so nice. But the point of that is... Adversity is the most universal, timeless reality. It is life. Adversity equals life. Mm -hmm. And so it's the most timeless, universal facet of our journey. If I said, you think of the person you most admire, guaranteed that person's been through real adversity. Mm -hmm. You know, we admire this in people so deeply. So, you know, there've been certain moments of truth for me. I mean, where you just kind of smack yourself in the face a little bit and go, dude, you got to take this seriously. Mm -hmm. So like when Harvard Business School reached out and said, out of the blue, and they said, we're revising the Harvard Business School's curriculum and we're looking for like the next big thing, which is, you know, they're number one in the world. And and long story short, they ended up choosing AQ. And so their research team said, this is the most important thing for leaders to learn going forward. And then it became part of their executive ed. That was a real wake up. That's when I started to kind of, I think, maybe grow up a little bit and kind of think, you got to get real about the potential impact. These are tomorrow's leaders. You know, and you're getting a chance. You have this opportunity to help affect their bloodstream, you know, who they become. And same thing with MIT when they had this new entrepreneurship program and it's the most elite entrepreneurship program there is. They have a thousand applicants and they accept 30 spots. They decide to use AQ as part of what they screen and part of what they teach or had me teach there for these entrepreneurs who are going to create some of the most pioneering companies in the world. And when these things start to happen, you just kind of sit up and go, you've got to take this, you, you really have to honor this mm-hmm. in, in the way you serve this up to people because you've been given this privilege of impacting people's lives in this most elemental way. So I'm so hugely just humbled daily by this journey. And I just try to do everything I can to serve it up in a way that matters to people and makes a difference. Do you think, Paul, that, you know, what we know about AQ in terms of 
you know, people's ability. It's first off, even having a, an awareness of it. That's always the first, I guess that's probably always the first step is right. Is what is your, your awareness of how you take on adversity? You know, there's a quote that says crisis is just preparation for the next crisis. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what adversity is, is just preparation for the next adversity. So we have to step into, as leaders, we step into the fact that that's a reality of life. Adversity is just a reality of life. And we have an awareness about how we approach adversity. That would be the first step in even your ability to harness it. If you're not aware how you do it, right? Maybe you do it naturally. Is it nurture? Is it nature? What's your thoughts on that? I, I think it's probably a combination of both, but I think it's mostly nurture. I think you got to really work at it. What's your thought? Yeah. You know, it's crazy. There, there actually is a good bit of research to draw on that. Uh, and what it basically says, the short version is the best guess based on their research is roughly 10% of your AQ is uh, genetic and about 90% is hardwired in your youth. In other words, nurtured. It's affected by you paying keen attention to how the influential people in your life respond to life's tough stuff when you're a little kid. And by around the age of 12, in most of us, this is firming. And by 16, it, we're pretty much hardwired for the rest of our life. But the one thing I never want to forget to say, so I'll say it right now, is we know definitively, and we can say this with great confidence now because of a million people we've worked with, your AQ can be permanently rewired and improved measurably. Mm -hmm. And that had more important than the number, of course, because of course we do measure this, is the way it shows up in your life in all these different ways. So what's what I love about AQ is it's, it's like that elephant you can touch from so many sides because, you know, you go, okay, what does the science say? Because of course today with the pandemic, everybody's paying attention to all the science and data and evidence and all these things that we get served up every day. Yeah, yeah, so we're yeah. all becoming like pocket statisticians. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? Isn't it crazy? You know, it's I'm having all these like nerdy conversations with my friends because they, you know, oh, who's no, got the latest? And I'm sure along, along the lines, you're also having the scam down the pandemic, the epidemic. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what is it all? But it doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter what it is or it isn't. I mean, you can have an opinion of that and, and whatever reality will eventually form. It's still an adversity that we're in and we're facing it, whether it's a scamdemic, splash, pandemic, and all the other terminology, <laughs> or if it's a reality that we're, it's all a reality that we're dealing with, right? So how oh, do we face that adversity? Well, my adversity is my rear end is getting zoom bloom because <laughs> <laughs> not the truth. <laughs> it's, it's, it's called the quarantine 15. So we all got to be a little bit aware of the eating, drinking and not moving. So anyway, yeah, yeah, that, that's the real deal. It really is. I know we're figuring out ways to like, you know, be able to be physically active during these <laughs> meetings. It's kind of fun. Um, so the first thing really is um, if you ask, so here's a simple test. And you got to do it brutally. You got to pick like five people who know you best. And by the way, ideally, five people who know you best would be the most honest with you. And just ask them, say, okay, I'm going to ask you an honest question. I want, and there's no consequence to your answer. On a scale of one to 10, if 10 is the best you've ever seen and one is the worst you've ever seen, on a scale of one to 10, when any kind of real adversity strikes, how effectively or how well do you think I respond? What score would you give me? And, and then kind of average those scores, right? And so it's a way of getting a quick kind of panoramic view of, 
of how others perceive the way you respond, right? But the real way to do it, of course, is we have an, a measure, which is the definitive gold standard called the AQ profile. We measure that. But most people, here's the problem. Most of us are terrible judges of our own AQ. We're terrible at it. And we've done studies. I mean, like if you have people guess, you know, how effectively they respond to adversity, people, 90, by the way, men are worse than women. I'm just going to say it, overinflate their AQ. So it's almost like everybody thinks they're above average. And that statistically is impossible. <laughs> so, and uh, it just doesn't work that way. So we don't have a very realistic view of ourselves on this. And I think it's because over time, a lot of people like take what's happening right now with all the setbacks, financially, professionally, everything else. There are a lot of people who over time will come out fine. So you, in their mind, they're thinking, I handled that really well. Well, the high IQ reality is more likely to be like what you're describing, where it actually became a pivotal point where you got super fired up, made some fundamental pivots and changes that radically improved the end game because it happened. They can't even imagine that story. But to them, they're a eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And they can't even enter the stratosphere that you're in which is where the real eights and nines exist. Well, there's, I think one of the first indicators is, is that did you just break out into a sweat when you, somebody, <laughs> when you suggested that I, I have a conversation with somebody that knows me and I said, <laughs> well, why would you rate me? <laughs> that would be your first indicator in my world. Did you just go, Oh shit, I'm afraid to ask that question, you know, yeah. or, 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 or do you take that on as, this may be a great opportunity. What a great question. I'll take that on as an opportunity to learn more about myself because our blind spots are, are literally our blind spots. We have no idea. We really, really don't. Right. And by the way, there are a lot of people who can handle the event or problem effectively, but at a cost to the people around them. That's such an important conversation. Like I, That's a, a point of entry as well because I know in the work that you do, when you take on any adversity and you're a leader and you're looked to for leadership, mm. there's different ways. And who are you being in it? Because there's, it's easy to be the asshole. It's easy to be that guy that takes it on and, and you know, leaves this huge wake of, you know, whatever it is. But can you take it on with a high degree of trust, of compassion, of empathy, humility? You know, those are, and, and vulnerability and, and, and actually being authentic because as leaders, we don't have all the answers, but can you actually lead from a place of being authentic and, and vulnerable and humble? And, or do you have to just show up as this asshole that has, you know, thinks he has all the answers and, or she, or whatever the, but do you understand what I'm saying? So in the world of AQ, it's not just about hitting and climbing the mountain and, and, and facing the adversity. It's about how you face it and how you show up. That's, that's how I've always, or what I've learned over the years as I've kind of investigated and taken on that work. Yeah. Well, you know, you've been on such a deep, rich journey of self that's led you to that kind of enlightened point of view. You know, that this led us to a different piece of work, which was, you know, I'll give you the quick version. We've been tracking two questions with groups all over the world for decades now, about 23 years. And the first question we would ask is like of leaders is, okay, think of everything on your plate, all your obligations, tasks, to-dos, lists, projects, 
or as you say, projects and everything. <laughs> and you've got all those things. You say, okay, out of all those, what percentage of all that stuff do you get done on time and to your satisfaction? So we'd ask that question. Second question was your peeps, your people, everyone you count on, on a composite basis, how much of their stuff do they get done on time and to your satisfaction? Well, over time, the answer to both of those questions has been gradually diminishing. And we call that syndrome completion erosion. So if you think about what's the effect of that on morale, on engagement, on fulfillment, you know, on hope, everything, right? Energy. So we thought, well, what's that about? And I thought, you know, AQ's one thing, which is how you respond to anything and everything is almost, if not the most pivotal thing, right? But there's this sort of dig deep and make it happen over the long term piece, which we called about 17 years ago, we called grit. And we said, okay, let's talk about grit. And we began to decode that and everything. It was a funny story of having a book with the Harvard Business School on grit called True Grit. And then the movie got the movie, released. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got this phone call that said, uh, we got bad news um, about the book. Not going to happen. So we paused. Best thing ever happened. But here's the question. I'll tell you the most impossible statistic in all my research. And I'm going to ask you it right now. So when we ask, first of all, all over the world, without us saying another word, when you think of the kind of person you want to be, the kind of life you want to have, the kind of contribution you want to make in the world, or it could be the kind of business you want to grow or whatever it is, on a scale one to 10, how important is grit? And we always get tens. And that's okay. You ready for the big question? Here it is. All the same questions, kind of person you want to be, kind of contribution, kind of life, kind of business, whatever. What matters more, the quantity or the quality of your grit? And guess what they say? I don't know what they say. You got the, the data. I would guess, it would, I would say for me, quality, but maybe it's quantity. A hundred per cent. Yeah, okay. Half a million people around the world. You can't ask any question of half a million people and get a hundred percent to say one thing. Hmm. It's an possible statistic, but it's true. So 100% of people worldwide will tell you quality matters as much or more than quantity on grit. So if you've been thinking about grit as sheer raw perseverance and tenacity and never, never, never quit and all that stuff, actually what we discovered is there's a way to decode and even measure and teach the qualitative aspect of grit, which is about what you're talking about, Patrick, which is not just think about the difference between dumb grit and smart grit. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many of us would just fess up right now and admit that you've spent, expended some really meaningful grit on the wrong stuff or in stupid ways, oh, right? 100%. I will. Yeah, Hands yeah. up. For going 100%, yeah. 100%. So yeah. then... Think about the difference. Here's the big one that humbles me to my bones every day. Think about the difference between bad grit and good grit, mm. which is about the effect you have on the people around you as you go after your goals. And here's the humbling part. That effect, you could be going after the most noble goal in the world, but if you do it in a way that's detrimental and harmful to others, it's still bad grit. And so even the unintentional effect 
is what matters as much, right? So, wow, there's not a moment in my life where I can't be demonstrating good or grit, where the way I go after it is more elevating and and beneficial ultimately to the people around me. That doesn't mean I'm coddling them at all. Oh it no, you're means, a hard ass. There's no doubt about that. So I don't. I don't know. Compared to you, <laughs> compared to you, I mean, you're kind of. I don't know, man. I've seen you do those push-ups. Well, but uh, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So when you're talking about that piece, you know, here we are in this pandemic, and you go, if I could equip myself with anything to really harness this and have this come out even better because of this this struggle and this hardship and this sacrifice, I can't think of two better pieces to weave together than AQ and grit because we are in it for the long haul. It does involve struggle, sacrifice, and stumbling. And how we respond to the onslaught of adversities that come us every day, those two together, that's the game changer. That's the Powerball. It is. And what I, you know, I think what for me and, and when I, you know, when I go back and when I think about all the work that I've done over the years, that was and much of it around the foundational stuff around AQ, that understanding of AQ, even just the context for AQ and the work that you do. And, and I know what you're passionate about is that what's really, really, uh, for me, inspiring about all of this work is that we get to be a contribution to others in supporting them in actually being the best that they can be and really uh, having a great life. And, and that level of contribution is pretty for, for me. And I know for you, for sure is, is pretty exciting. It's this is an opportunity for us to really not only show up, but to show others the opportunity and a way of being that can be the leader, even if it's just in their family even if it's just in their immediate circle of support and circle of influence. And this is really a great opportunity. And, and, and yeah, like I say, shit's hitting the fan. It's a, it's a mess. And as we're, it's interesting that as we do this particular recording on, of this podcast, you know, we'll release it in, let's say two or three weeks, but what's going to be in three weeks from now, Paul, like at the speed of which thing is moving right now, it's, it's not so bad. Like right, really we're at, at about a three week mark ish. And for many, it's been like a bit of a three-week annoying time off for some a cool vacation. But ultimately, mm-hmm. the the heat is really going to get turned up as we roll forward. You know, we know we're going to be locked down for the next 30, 60, perhaps 90 days. And yep. now all of a sudden things are starting to pile up, you know, and you're locked down. You know, we're both blessed to live in an environment where we got lots of space and lots of room. I'm on five acres of land and, you know, we got buildings and we're like, you know, so we we're in this open space. But what about the individuals that are locked down with family in a, you know, a 800 or a thousand square foot condo, for example, you know, like that's a lot of pressure. All of a sudden you're working with your significant other, assuming that you both got work. You've got one, two, three kids. I mean, what an environment to work in. That in itself is huge adversity. How do you even take on that adversity, I think, is is and, and the grit involved in that, the commitment to doing that in a powerful way is... Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, people misunderstand this work a lot because when you talk about adversity and grit, people think of the big, you know, mountain that you're 
climbing and the big, you know, tenacious goal that you're taking on and all this. This is about how you respond to the everyday nitty gritty of life. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, and when that, when it's chronic stress and pressure and nothing is to your liking, you know, maybe not even any, you know, meal that you're eating or moment of your day or you never get a break or even a chance for some sanity mm-hmm. or whatever and and you don't get to have a worry-free moment because maybe you have lost your job or maybe your business did get gutted or maybe your financials are turned upside down or maybe someone you love is sick or whatever it may be so you know this is where it kind of comes down to what we were alluding to at the beginning which is it, it, if you could master one thing we know you know the event is really something, but your response is everything. And so if you can master your what we call your core response to any and every adversity in any given moment, then 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 you become almost like the Zen guru master of your universe in a much more authentic but but effective way. And it helps you uh, surf it instead of get buried by it. And that's what it comes down to. So those four core dimensions, if you want, we can dive into those. But that to me is sort of the secret code, the secret sauce of all of this. I do want to dig into core a little bit, uh, Paul, or a lot, whatever we decide on. But I think, you know, what I really want to emphasize in this awareness around what your AQ might be or how you're taking on this adversity is as parents, especially for those listening uh, as parents with now in an environment with their children is how you're showing up, you're being watched. This is an opportunity to not only, mm. to not only be the best you can be and, and discover yourself, but it's also an opportunity to show up and, and show your children and have conversations with your kids about what you're dealing with and what they're dealing with. I mean, imagine how frustrating, you know, for some kids, it'll be as simple as, well, I don't get to hang out with my friends or I don't get to go to school. For others, it will be more traumatic. They'll feel the anxiety and the pressure of being locked down. Mom and dad maybe not getting along as well as they normally do. And and as a parent, you're going, well, usually the school looked after my kid all day long. Now I have to. Like, I don't know how to do that. Seriously. You know? Seriously. <laughs> One of my favorite little memes that was going around is this woman is kind of leaning into the camera with this real stressed look on her face. And she goes, look, she goes, I got trained to be an attorney. I got trained to be a community leader. You know what I didn't get trained for? Being a teacher at home for homeschooling. And she's like screaming at the top of her lungs, you know. Uh, like, I, gotta, didn't get, I didn't get trained for this job. It's driving me crazy. That's got to be uh, a lot of pressure for parents. You know, I'm blessed. You know, oh. I'm, I'm a grandfather. You know, Aaron's and her husband, they, you know, they're they're doing well. And, and so I just get to be that, you know, helicopter parent, you know, as a grandparent. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, I was worried about the divorce rate in Canada when I heard about the hockey season getting canceled. (laughs) So true. (laughs) I thought, what, are they going to like talk to each other? I mean, what's going to happen here? Yeah, exactly. What do you do? You know, it's like, well. (laughs) So let's talk about, let's keep talking a little bit about, because I think this is such an appropriate, that's why I was so excited to be able to get you on the uh on this podcast right now at this time and and Mm. well anytime but this is of course i think this is just such a valuable conversation to be having uh with listeners 
And so let's talk about core because I think that's a, 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 a great context. I think that would be my kind of where I would want to take it, but you're, you're the boss on this conversation, you know, is for, for me, core is a great context for people to kind of give them a thought process around core and what it means. And because it's a view of the world that if you take it on can be so huge. Well, you know, for context, a couple things, right? Number one is think about over the course of your lives, how many motivational things you've been fed that are kind of like a cup of coffee. You know, they pump you up temporarily and then when it wears off, you desperately need another cup. And and we know that we've been kind of hacking at the leaves and so much about success and motivation and everything has been done so superficially. And it really irks me, to be honest. And so I always wanted to know, you know, what what really comes from the inside out at the at the almost level of our genuine DNA. And we can talk about that, by the way, because we have a study going underway from in partnership with someone in Canada around epigenetics and how we may be able to literally upgrade our human DNA using AQ. And, and that's, I'm not joking. So with this, what the research has shown is that your AQ is comprised of four core dimensions. So what are those and how do we turn that into a tool to upgrade our core response to anything and everything, right? Well, here it is. C stands for control. And the question it asks is, how likely are you to do anything to influence whatever happens next? Like to what degree do you perceive you can influence whatever happens next? So you can't control the pandemic. We probably can't control our government's responses. There's a lot of things we can't control. But when you think about what matters most to you, there are so many things each and every one of us can influence every single day. So control is a big one. So people with higher AQs naturally see and activate around things they can influence. The more normal or lower your AQ tends to be, the more you may start to feel a little bit of learned helplessness. Like, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. They're just going to tell us when we can, you know, get outside our homes and when we can go back to work, you know. I hope they figure out something. And that does, by the way, genuinely provoke depression and anxiety, which can be crippling, right? So we'll talk about some antidotes too. Because in that, so just just in that conversation, and I don't want to interrupt too much because I, I know you're- No, no, this is a conversation, yeah. So, so in, in when we talk about control, you know, there's always the conversation, not always, there's often a conversation with individuals that they're to your point, they're going, you know, they're either- like, there's nothing we can do about this. You know, there's that, there's that issue, right? Which is like, a, mm. you know, I'm, I've just given into the fact that there's nothing I can do and it's, but it's a bit of a bummer, right? It's like there, but then there's the place where anxiety lives, which is the worry about things that you can't control. So it's, it's like really defining what you can or what you can't control, you know, in, in the work, in the work I did around, you know, with studying of the greatest Stoics, you know. I, you know, you start mm-hmm. to have the conversation of what can you control and what can't you control? And guess what? Let go of what you can't control. There's no point in hanging on to it and, and buying into it because you are limited to what you can control. You know, Marcus Aurelius would say, the only thing you can truly control is your mental, emotional, spiritual attitude towards what the circumstances are. 
and and Seneca and everybody. Yeah, Seneca, I mean, yeah, and, sure. and the modern day version of that is the one thing we can control and eventually master is our own response. That's it. So, you know, I'm I'm not so concerned with what can you and can't you control because if I had a high IQ person sitting next to a low IQ person, they would have the most ferocious argument based on their perception of what they can control. Mm. My question is, in your, to what extent do you perceive you can influence? Got it. That's a different whatever question. Whatever happens right? next. Yeah. Yeah. And there are so many things we can't control that we can at least influence. That's such a great distinction. And that's where the, that's where the action traction kicks in, right? Yeah. So, so that's part one, is, mm-hmm. is perceived influence, right? But this is just what explaining core. We haven't turned it into a tool yet, right? Mm-hmm. Ownership asks the question, how likely it's the step up factor. So how likely are you to step up to do anything to make it better? And the higher a person's AQ is, the more naturally they step up. They can't almost they can't even help it. And the more normal or lower a person's AQ tends to be, which is more people, of course, the more you may tend to sit back and wait or step back because it's already overwhelming and you already don't think there's much you can do about it anyway. Mm -hmm. So this formula, those two together can be crippling and they can have a horrendously erosive effect on your health, your energy, your optimism, and all kinds of other things. And I mean, at the most biochemical level. So those two together play together pretty strongly, perceived control and ownership. Because if you don't perceive you can influence anything, why would you even step up, right? And it's interesting, the more you step up, even when you least feel like it, the more perceived influence you have. Mm-hmm. So a good analogy is, you know, that day where you're just like going, remember like when there were gyms and you could go to a gym to work out? Remember <laughs> that those was days? so long ago. That was, that was so three so weeks long ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, we'll tell stories to our grandchildren. <laughs> there used to be a gym and it was a place where people went together to work out. But, you know, so you'd walk in and, uh, you know, when's the day that you should work out? When you least feel like it. Because when you do, it gives you a sense of perceived influence over yourself and your environment. So the more despondent you are, the more you need that. And so when you least feel like it, right? And that applies to all of us. And then reach and endurance are about magnitude and duration. So reach asks the question, how far do you perceive this will reach into and affect everything else? So when you hear someone say, oh, the whole world's gone to shit, you know, well, that's called catastrophizing, right? Because now you've let it affect and infect everything. The higher your AQ tends to be, the more you tend to contain it. Then you, and by the way, if you add endurance, which is about not your stamina or endurance, but it's about duration, perceived duration, how long do you... perceive this will last or endure. So pretty with a normal or moderately low AQ might be going, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And it'll never be the same. And they mean that in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Like the best is lost, right? Yeah, it's over. And, and we'll never get out of this one, you know? Whereas a person with a higher AQ, and this is not happy think, I'm talking about their natural response is more like, well, There's so many things that we can do to get through this, the worst of this as quickly as possible. And in the meantime, there's so many things I can be doing to make the best of this as possible. I mean, I'll just tell you personally, if I may, I hope 
personally, and I don't mean this on behalf of anybody suffering or dying or anything like that. For me personally, my personal circumstance right now, I hope this doesn't end too soon <laughs> because I'm loving it. And I'm loving it because it's giving me this opportunity that I may never get again in my life to, you know, reinvent, rejuvenate in so many ways in terms of what we're doing, how we're doing it, myself, my health, just my relationships. It, it, it just hit the reset button and it's a chance to just spring clean anything and everything you care about. And we never get that. And so just like the world is regenerating because there's less air pollution and carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff. And people can see the stars in China and all these kinds of things. I view that as kind of a metaphor for ourselves. So, you know, our core, if you think about our core response, you just have to be real about it and go, there is a big fat bell curve. So normal by definition means you're kind of toward the middle of the bell curve, which is where most of us are which means most people are getting unnecessarily really beat up and suffering unnecessarily by this adversity right now. That's a normal human experience. But the good news is we know definitively that that suffering can be radically mitigated and we can have a radically upgraded experience with this adversity. And we know how to help you do that by upgrading your core response, your core pattern of response to any and all adversity. So we turn it into what we call the four core questions, which you can use with anything, anyone at any time to handle anything in the moment that much better. You know, it's so interesting that you know, as, as we sit with, you know, the team, the RAIN executive team, and our whole team, by the way, is, is really, you know, we're the pointy end of the spear. We get that, but the whole team is behind us. In, and we're mm-hmm. actually having conversations around our ability to rise and to literally, you know, all boats rise on a tide, right? And, and we really mm-hmm. want to be that tide. We think we can bring the community up. We think we can really make a difference in people's lives as we go through this. And that's all to say that this so is great. a reset. This is a reset, but it's also such a huge opportunity because here's what's, what's happening. The coronavirus, the pandemic is happening. It is happening. Mm-hmm. Either way, whether I'm pissed off, bitchy about it, down in the dumps about it, depressed about it, it's happening. Or I could be, I'm taking this and I'm going to own it and I'm going to really, really make a difference in this freaking world. And when you're fired up about a purpose like you are, like the rain, the, our executive team is, it seems sometimes like this is awesome. Like this is awesome. But it doesn't change the fact that people are dying and people are struggling and, and shit's going to hit the fan. But we can take it on however we take it on. That's all true. But it's true, doesn't regardless. I can I can be down in the dumps about it, or I can be okay. Let's 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 grab this by the balls and and run with it. Like let's get a handle on this and go. And so it, it's an interesting mm-hmm. uh, when you look at core and when you really break that down. It's such a for me. It's it's a it's a great tool to review, to reflect, to take time to step back and say, where are you? Where, what part of this are you using to, you know, to harness it and take advantage of it? Well, and you know, it's, it's, it's so 
ultimately agile because I can be with one of my grandsons and, you know, he could be upset about something at school and I can just ask him. So let me ask you, what are some of the facets of the situation that you can potentially influence? You know, oh, I hate my teacher. Well, what are, you know, what's one or two facets of the situation you could potentially influence? Or, you know, hey, you know, it sounds like, you know, this quarter is really a disaster for you academically. What's one thing you could do right now to begin to minimize the potential fallout or downside of this, you know? Or in our situation now with the pandemic, here's the question nobody asks. What can you do to maximize the upside? How do you maximize the upside of a global pandemic? Mm-hmm. That seems like it's it's just offensive to ask that question, right? It's blasphemy, but there's an upside if we create it. So what can you and I be doing right now to maximize the potential upside of this adversity, each of us, for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our our businesses, for our communities, all of it, right? And then you you can ask somebody, so what can we do to get through the worst of this even quicker than we are now right now, you know? And by the way, you know, I think of it like in the United States, they have this big aid package with small business loans and different things like that. Well, hey, remember when you used to get on an airplane and you'd be sitting in a gate and there'd be, you could see them reaching for the microphone to announce the delay? Well, if you wait till they start talking on that microphone, you already lost. One thing we know about adversity is those who respond quickest and best win. So if you want the seat on the next plane, the first one who responds to that adversity in the most effective way is the one who gets that seat. The same thing happens with these loans. If you wait in line and wait for them to say, okay, it's time to start thinking about filling out applications and this and that, you've already, you've already lost. But the moment you heard there might be an aid package and you start working it in that moment, you're at the front of the line and now your chances of getting the funds in time to keep your oxygen going for your business are that much stronger. So adversity can be insanely energizing because it does become a bit like a game because those who respond better and faster win. And I don't know about you, it's kind of fun to win. It is. It's very fun to win. Just in that point that you were making there, Paul, is that in this case, you know, th- it requires a decision. So, you know, you have to decide not to just face adversity, but, you know, you talked about, you know, you know, they're picking up, you know, you and I have traveled a lot over the years, you even more than me. Uh, w- but at the end of the day, you know, when that guy's picking up to say, we're going to be delayed and you got to go to the next gate or whatever the story is, or the aid package or whatever. <laughs> but in that moment, you're having to make a decision, which is owning the impact or the effect you can have on the outcome, which is to get on the next plane or to get, or to be part of that, that aid package. But inside of that lives a decision. And there's, I believe this is me kind of theoretically saying those with a high AQ make decisions quickly and get behind the decision and just start moving based on that decision, as opposed to waiting to see what is the right time. So does that, I don't know if I'm, I'm phrasing that question correctly, but in all of that lives a decision to show up, to move forward, to uh, make a call in, in what will serve, what will best serve you, best serve the business, best serve your life. And, and a decision-making process is 
is because I see often is individuals that are so indecisive or they won't make a decision or they're afraid to make a decision because they're afraid of the consequences. And well, what if I do rush out the door? Am I going to miss something? Am I really going to get to that? that next gate, are they really going to let, like there's a second guessing that goes in there. So I don't know if that gives you mm-hmm. enough context to speak to it or not, but in that mm-hmm. AQ decision-making, where do you think that lives in it? Because I, to me, it, it mm-hmm. is part of uh, a high AQ. It is, you know, and again, I'll, I'll try to be like all the nerds who are watching on TV right now. According to the evidence, <laughs> here's what the data says. Yeah, you're um, good at that. So that's good, though, because you got the evidence. Yeah. Let's do it. We need data. <laughs> yeah. By, by the way, you know, my wife on more than one occasion has says, by the way, if, if we ever go on a date again, like, don't use the words evidence or data. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> just, just suggesting. Um, but, in the research that's been done, you know, in all these independent studies we've been part of around the world now, um, AQ is predicts and drives these kinds of factors. Higher AQ people outperform lower AQ people. They're more productive. They out-innovate them. They have more energy. Their health is measurably stronger across all kinds of measures. People with lower AQs have more sick days, by the way. They get sick more frequently. That's kind of relevant right now. Uh, Higher AQ people tend to, Harvard study, tend to live longer. Uh, And one of the ones that you're hitting on, and there's a whole host of other ones, they're more resilient, they're more agile, they're more tenacious, they're more optimistic, they have a higher quality of life. I mean, hello, right? But the one you're hitting on is, we'll call it problem solving. And so measurably, the higher your AQ goes, you send a tend to solve problems better and faster compared to more normal people. And so that agility that's inside you that gets juiced by trying to work and solve the problem right now to get the best possible outcome, because the higher your AQ goes, the more you tend to be an optimizer. You're playing this game of how to try to make the best of any given circumstance in any given moment. And that's what creates that energy flywheel, right? You're energized by it. I'm energized by it. And and that's a really positive thing biochemically for you. That helps you stay robust and healthy during the process. So that's true. But the thing I don't want to have happen is I don't want someone to become an adversity junkie. I don't want someone to become a risk freak because you know they've got a high AQ and they're just like, I live for this stuff and I'll try anything. That's That's like a metastasized version of AQ. The true, grounded, healthy, enlightened, high AQ individual is somebody, and by the way, we just have to say, put a, put a pause right now and just say this. You know what word makes no sense to someone with a high AQ? Adversity. Oh, adversity, right. They're talking about- wait, They don't even about? understand the word. <laughs> that was a good point. So that's the irony of this whole freaking conversation is that we're talking about adversity, 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 adversity. If you ask a high AQ person, what has been the biggest adversities of your life? They go, oh, you know, not so bad. I've had a pretty good, good journey. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. What have been some of the most interesting challenges? They'd be like, well, you know, when I had life-threatening cancer and when my house burned down and when we lost our business and when my, you know, wife died and when this and this and this and this. So, you know, just a few bumps in the road. You know, whereas to a normal person, any one of those could be the defining adversity of their lives. And they've been a victim of that ever since. You know what I mean? And that's, by the way, not a judgment. That's just the unfortunate, and my heart goes out to anybody and everybody 
who has that kind of AQ where if one bad thing happens, they just struggle so hard to pull out. I remember the second, it was the first Oprah show I was on. There was a woman, it was the funniest thing, Patrick, you would have loved it. I go in, you know, and I'm, I'm, it's the Oprah show. I don't know what's going to happen. So I go in, they have the green room where they get you ready. And, you know, given my bald dome, makeup was pretty simple. (laughs) Sure. And so there's this woman they're paying, just flitting around this woman, this whole crew. And she's got this huge orange mane of curly red hair. And they're putting on makeup and fixing her hair and doing all this. And she comes out of this room and she and she's just got this toot about her. And she comes up to me and she goes, Who are you? Now, the whole show is me sitting next to Oprah in the two chairs, or what you call the Tom Cruise chair, and <laughs> and talking about AQ. That is the show. The whole show. So this woman comes up to me and she goes, who are you? And I said, oh, well, I'm Paul Stoltz and I'm, you know, and she goes, uh-huh. And she waits and I go, who are you? She goes, I'm Tangerine. And I went, oh, <laughs> this is well, interesting. who are you? And I said, oh, and are you going to be on the show? She goes, yes. Oprah's people reached out to me. And I said, why are you going to be on the show? She goes, my boyfriend broke up with me. And I can't get over it. And I looked at her, I said, so so that's why you're on the show. She goes, most devastating moment of my life. So there's we're doing the show. And of course, there's this moment where Tangerine, you know, is supposed to be asked about why her entire life is defined by the fact that her boyfriend broke up with her two years ago. And she's been crippled and crushed and destroyed ever since. Now, just knowing what you know about Oprah, how well do you think Oprah cottons to that kind of? <laughs> well, mindset? I'm thinking that I'm thinking that she's got the you know the the guy who wrote the book on AQ, and this is a perfect <laughs> example of no AQ versus what's possible. Oh my gosh! Yeah. It was yeah. Tangerine did not come off favorably on that show, um, but the point of the matter is. We all have to make these really deep decisions. And a lot of us who do get victimized by adversity or defined, let's just say defined by our adversity, what I'm here to tell you right now is I have the ultimate sympathy and compassion for that. But I also have to give you the hope to say, I can say this probably more credibly than maybe anyone. You do not, no matter what it is, you do not have to be defined by it. And you can use that adversity to come out stronger and better over time. There are real, real ways to do that. And that's not positive thinking, happy think, you know, pump yourself up kind of stuff. This is about fundamentally rewiring your core response to anything and everything so that you can pull yourself through anything and everything, including what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, we can go off on a whole bunch of rabbit holes on that conversation because ultimately like Tangerine, you know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's those individuals who, because of the reach and because of the endurance and because of the effect of it has, it actually serves her to stay in that conversation for an extended period of time. So she's not interested in, in, in increasing her AQ. And then there's those other individuals who in fact are interested in going, how do I get over this shit? Because it's really messing me up, you know? 
Right. Well, you nailed it, Patrick. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, if nothing else, you know, it's sort of like if I decoded rock and roll into four chords and said, here are the four chords that they play on a guitar and every rock and roll song you've ever loved. And you heard them over and over. Next time you hear a rock and roll song, what are you going to be listening for? Mm-hmm. And you'd be going, oh my gosh, there's those four chords. I can't get them out of my head, right? Well, that's what core's like. If nothing else from this conversation, if you walk around and go, wow, that was reach. That was endurance. That was control. That was ownership. And you start listening to and paying more keen attention to even your own core response, not even having me- really measured your AQ, even just starting there mm-hmm. and starting to kind of think of ways you can own and strengthen your own core response to your own stuff, that's a great place to start. So, so Paul, take me back a little bit because, you know, you've written the book, you've written five books, but over the, the time that I had the opportunity to get to know you and see how you operate, but there's a story in behind that. I mean, you didn't, you didn't come out of the shoot talking about AQ. So, you know, what was your own journey, if you will, in terms of where did, why did AQ show up for you? Where did it start to, where did, where did you give birth to AQ? Where did it actually start to go? Holy shit. I'm, I, I, I'm noticing something here. You know, give, <laughs> you know, give me, can you give us a little bit of a story about how AQ even came to be, Paul? You know, there were a couple moments of truth. I got smacked in the face with that question one time. I, I think I was being interviewed by like the Wall Street Journal or something. And they, this person got kind of leaned into me and got real personal about it. And all of a sudden I had this rev, this memory. And the memory is this. I was 12 years old. I was with my dad, who was a business guy. And he was taking me on a trip, which was a really big deal. And we were stuck at O'Hare Airport in Chicago in a blizzard back when it was like a prisoner of war bunker. And we were lucky enough, we had a seat. So we're sitting next to each other in these horrible seats and we're watching the walking dead just going up and down with that just broken, despondent, browbeaten look, you know, back and forth. And, and I'm this 12-year-old kid all full of myself. So I turned to my dad and I said, dad, I said, why are people so dead? And so he pulls down his Wall Street Journal and kind of looks up and he goes, what do you mean? I said, dad, look at their faces. I mean, these people look dead. And so he turns to me and he goes, you know, don't be so judgmental. He said, sometimes life is hard. And so I sat there and I thought about it. And as he starts to pull his paper back up, I said, so being the self-indulgent 12-year-old, I go... (laughs) So like, am I going to end up like that? And then he slowly pulls it down again and looks at me and says, you know, some people seem to find another way. Mm. And I just remember thinking, I want to be that because I don't want to be what I'm seeing. No way. Unacceptable. So that was number one. Mm. And then number two was about seven years later, I'm 19 years old. I'm in my academic major at the University of California. And I have this advisor, cool prof who's like a surfer and he's just a super bright guy full acts like navy seal or army ranger guy i really like this guy and it's a leadership class so i get in his grill and i go so like how do we know who wins and he goes at what i said anything like sports business life school whatever everything anything he goes say that a different way 
I go, uh, okay, so like who fails and who prevails? And so he literally pokes me in the chest. He goes, that's going to be your first research project, Pong. <laughs> go find out. So I went to that place I'd not been to a lot called the, what was it? A library. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. thing. Remember them. those? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I was so smug, Patrick. I thought, I'll bang this out in an afternoon and I'll be like, you know, partying after dinner. Here I am 40 years later. And I've been decoding and excavating across 21 scientific disciplines, trying to find out what that's all about. And that's what led to this journey and, and this revelation with AQ and eventually grit was just trying to answer that question, you know, and, and that's where we are. So that's what led me to it was, was all of that. And I've always been so I've just felt inside me the suffering. You know, there's a word, I think it's a Yiddish word that is Weltschmerz, which means the the pain of the world. And there are some people you see just on their visage, their face, that they just carry the pain of the world, you know? And I feel a degree of that because like with this pandemic, one of the, I've been doing these daily LinkedIn video uh, segments, you know, one and a minute, minute and a half every day, just to be with people and talk them through this on how we can harness our adversity for weeks now. And one of them is titled, Have You Cried Yet? Because if you grok the magnitude of the pain of what's happening right now, there should be some tears. And to let yourself have those tears and cathart, cleanse, your soul and your spirit and then build from there is a much higher strength than trying to fend it off. Mm -hmm. You talk about your dad a little bit and your, how influential were your parents? I've shared, you know, I came from the wrong side of the tracks totally, you know, and, and my relationship with my dad was always in question, never really improved all that much. You know, my mom and mm -hmm. I were pretty tight, but the influence of our parents is, you know, some of us have to work, you know, I had to work through that. I had to work through that, that impact that my dad had, for example. But so that's all to say that parents are a big influence. So in your world, what was the influence that your parents had on how you show up today and that you took on this work and, and were they really supportive? Were they entrepreneurial? Were, mm -hmm. how, how, how did you come to be, you know, what role did they play in this? Did you come by the entrepreneurial spirit really? Did you come by it naturally? Honestly, was it that your background? Or what what influence did your your folks have? Yeah, you know, huge. Uh, my mother was uh, very self-made in the sense that she was one of the earliest feminists and became a psychotherapist, you know, when women didn't have professional pursuits back then. And so understanding and appreciating the psychology side of things and also seeing, frankly, the limitations of that school of thought um, it was very influential. But she always, you know, believed in me and, and encouraged me in my creative alternative way of going at things. And my dad was, uh, you know, a very hardworking, honest, self-made, first in his family to ever go to college, a uh, businessman who, you know, went on and became very successful. And I so appreciated his work ethic and everything else, but he was a venture capitalist over time. So I got to be with him when he had what they called the stack of dreams in the corner of the office, which is all these entrepreneurs sending in their business plans going, please fund me. <laughs> right, sure. And 
And so as a kid, I'm helping him go through these, quote unquote, helping him and, and helping to uh, learning about what is it inside a person that makes them want to pick you over someone else? What is sort of the entrepreneurial secret sauce? And I became really captivated by that. So there's no doubt I would not have been an entrepreneur had it not been for that. And honestly, I, I this sounds like a made-up story, but I honestly have been an entrepreneur, meaning hitting the streets, knocking on doors, finding a way to make money since I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And that was your... Although your parents weren't built that way, what they were built to do was to support their kids in their endeavors, whatever they might be, to support that creativity that you had as a, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit that seemed to kind of just be in your yeah, DNA. Yeah, and honestly, the huge, hugest influence, maybe even as much or more than them, was my grandmother. Mom, she lived to 106. She um, Okay, so hold the, on. I got to interrupt here because I can't remember if it's your grandmother or your mother that you shared a really, really amazing story that you have a conversation when you went over to visit one time and you got into the conversation of AQ. Can you share that story? Yeah, so I, I mean... Because it's good. It's a good story. It's very kind of you. I haven't told the story in a really long time, but you know, truth is I was with a client in Toronto and my grandmother grew up and has always lived her whole life in Buffalo, New York. And so I'm with this client in Toronto and I'm telling this story about mom. And so this person comes up and calls me on it. They take out their cell phone and hand it to me and they're with some other people. Like they get up to me in the, at the break and go, you're calling mom. We want to meet her because they didn't believe it was real, the story I was telling. So, and I had told this whole story and, you know, everything else. So they're like, no way, this can't be real. We have a meter. So I said, okay, game on. So I grabbed the cell phone, they're standing there. And I call my, you know, at the time, like 100-year-old grandmother. And I say, hi, mom, this is Paul. She goes, oh, Paul, it's so wonderful to hear from you. And I said, so mom, I didn't realize this, but I'm doing some work with a client and it's kind of near Niagara and I'm pretty close to you. And they would love to meet you. Oh, that's fantastic. You have to come by. And I said, but but please don't do anything or prepare anything because we just want to say hi, give you a hug. And, and that's it. She goes, oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait. You know, and they're like, wow, just listening to her on the phone. They're going, come on, really? So we drive down, we show up. And as we pull up, this woman steps out the front door in heels, beautiful outfit. It just looks like she's, you know, going out to dinner and and they and she's like well hello how are you and what is your name and what do you do oh and hello and how are you well what a beautiful dress you're wearing and what is your name and how she's like the most gracious person ever they're like going oh my god go in she's got fresh baked cookies and things laid out and everything else the place is as neat as a button and you know that didn't happen in an hour right this is how she lives. And so she sits down and starts having this conversation. She's like, so tell me about you. And if you heard what happened, like with the war in Iraq and this and that, did you know that the missiles were actually coded from a different country? And she's saying all these things about all these different subjects. And they're just going, oh my gosh, she's like unbelievable. She's no, she's tuned into everything. She's on top of it. She's smart. So then the biggest skeptic in the room says, mom, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I know it's coming. And mom goes, sure, I'd love to answer. What is it? And she goes, what have been the biggest adversities 
in your life? And they're all like going, yeah, let's hear the mom real story. So mom goes, you know, I have to tell you, I've just been so blessed. I've had the greatest life. So really not much. And so they look at me like, see, she's a fake. And I said, no, 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 no. Mom, what have been the most important challenges of your life? And she goes, well, I would have to say, you know, maybe it was when I was eight years old and our house burned down because, of course, back then there wasn't any homeowner's insurance or anything like that. So we lost everything. And we had to, in the winter in Buffalo, rebuild our house from nothing. And, of course, I was the oldest kid. So at eight, I was really taking care of the family. And she goes, and just when we got to rebuild, she goes, my father got cancer and And of course, he passed away. We were so sorry to see him go because he was such an important person. So I was actually the mother of the family while my mother tried to work. She was working so hard. So I'm taking care of the kids. And I put them all through school myself, which was really, I guess, quite a challenge. But I never thought of it that way. And then there was a time where, you know, I got... uh, I I think you know this, I got terminal cancer and they told me I had two years to live, but here I am 30 years later. So I guess that worked out okay. And she goes, and then there was the time, you know, your grandfather, God bless him. You know, when he passed away, um, they had a business which was stocking ships on Lake Erie. I mean, talk about a man's business. Yeah, no kidding. He'd load sides of beef on a boat, you know, and toothbrushes and everything you needed to survive at sea and go out through those seas and bring it to the captain and unload the goods. And, you know, here's this diminutive, tiny little woman. He passes away in his sleep at age 65. So at 64 years old, she is given this business. He left her $25,000 in life insurance. And I said, so what'd you do? She goes, well, it turns out you're grandfather was a very generous man, a little bit too generous. She goes, so I, and she has no schooling. She goes, I just started paying keen attention to the checkbook. And I noticed ways we were maybe spending too much and maybe some ways we could save a little and maybe we could make a little more. And I said, how to work out? She goes, well, I have to tell you, I sold the business for quite a handsome profit. (laughs) And she said, um, and I'm just so happy that happened. And she goes, and now she goes, between you and me, I'm all set. (laughs) And so she goes through this whole thing, you know, of one after another, that was about half of it. And so then I look around the room and I went, oh, and everybody went, okay, she's the real deal. So to her final breath, she was the person everyone called when they were struggling or sick or had a hard time or lost a loved one or whatever, she was always the one they turned to to cheer them up and to help them think through and guide through the adversity. And when I wrote my first book, she we had, we'd read five books a week, by the way, five books a week. Wow. And, and till her dying day. And when she, I wrote my first book, she called me and she goes, Paul, I have to tell you, this is the first book I've ever read that explains why I'm the way I'm at, the way I am. Mm-hmm. It actually explains me to me. I can't thank you enough. So it was her very essence. And so she was such a role model in terms of seeing someone like that with no schooling and no formal education and no formal authority and the amazing effect she had on everyone mm-hmm. around her. 
because of her AQ. And I thought, wow, what's that about? You know, that's, you know, as you're sharing that story, um, my mom just is, uh, I think she just turned 92 and she's very active. Like, you know, like she's still totally there. You can have this conversation with her. And as long as she's got her hearing aid turned up, it's like, she doesn't miss a beat, right? It's it's really good. And I look at my mom and I'm just, as you're sharing that story, it occurred to me, like in the past, you know, really in the past seven or eight years, you know, she's lost her husband, she lost two daughters, and she still is the matriarch to aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, it's like, <laughs> but she's still that go-to person for exactly that, you know? And, and I always, I share the story all the time. When my mom was 90, I went over, I dropped by, I say, Hey, mom, how are you doing? She goes, I'm doing good. She says, I went bowling the other day. And I says, Oh, good for you. Five pin bowling. And I said, Oh, good for you. I said, how'd you do? And she goes, well, good. She says, I, you know, I, I used my, uh, my, wa- or my, uh, cane when I threw the ball, I was, I didn't want to fall down. Like I thought I might throw my balance off, but she says, you know something after the third frame, I said to hell with it. She says, I set my, my, my cane to the side. And she says, I bowled the rest of the game. And she goes, I go, well, that's awesome. I'm good for you. And she goes, I just had to prove it to myself. You know, I just had to prove I could do it. And, wow. and I, and she goes, I go, mom, you're 90. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. The fact that you bowled is awesome. And she goes, yeah, I guess so. She goes, I'll have you know I broke a hundred. You know, that was kind of <laughs> I go, what an amazing quality. So, you know, it, isn't that great? It is so See, great. And she inspires you, which it, is so, so wonderful. I go, wow. You know, so it's And it's, doesn't that just change your mind, you know, your whole frame of reference in terms of what your your years could be? hmm Totally. You know? I mean, there are so many people that go, oh, well, you know, she's 75, so, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I'm sorry. You know, if if you're in the third period of this hockey game, who says it can't be the best one? Uh, you know, that's that's a great way to put it, 100%. And so it's how we take on the world. And, and I'm, you know, at 62 years old, I'm fired up about it. Like, I'm really, really excited about whatever's next. You know, I'm on the Freedom 95 plan, you know, because I don't ever intend to not be doing what I'm doing. You know, and that's how I look at it, because it's so fun. And it's so inspiring to be part of this kind of a kind of work. It's really a huge contribution. I want to go back. Mm. Um, it's so cool what you're doing. Adversity Advantage, uh, I think, was a book I read, and that was written, I don't remember the last name, it was Eric, I think it was Adversity Advantage, he, a blind That's right. climber. And yes, I want to dig into that just a little bit, because there were so many lessons in that book about what Eric brought to the table when you think about adversity and what we can accomplish. Because I think this is really you know, Eric's story, your story, your mom's story, my mom's story. I mean, it's it it plays into just who we are in our life, you know, whether it be business, real estate investor. You know, I think about who we are as leaders in the world of real estate investment when we have our tenants or, you know, our, our clients, our customers, if you will, is that many, depending on where they're at, are facing layoffs. They're facing, mm. you know, the fact that they're, they may run out of income, you know, or they may not have the income they need to support it. You know, as business owners, that puts stress on us because how do we pay the mortgage and we're juggling. And But at the end of the day, you know, how we face that adversity is the reality of it is how do we support our customers and being and showing up to look after the property and work with them to get rents paid and to 
support them in in the adversity that they're facing because many will hold it differently than we do as business owners of that. So uh, the yes. reason I want the reason I bring Eric into the conversation is because it's more an illustration of who we can be in some really huge adversity and how we can take it on. And mm-hmm. can, can you share a little bit about Eric? I don't want to I don't want to steal the the thunder of that. You know, it's so great to hear you say that because, you know, when you talk about customers, what I always say to any client I'm working with is I'll ask them, I'll say, so what do your customers care about more? What you say and do when everything's going great or what you say and do and how you show up when things go wrong and which one has a bigger impact on, on their respect and their trust and the relationship. And so if you're a landlord and you own property and that's been your income source and now you're being tested because your tenants are losing jobs and can't pay rent and now that's how you pay your mortgage and it's putting the squeeze on you and everything like that, who you are in that moment is, is so pivotal to to you with self, your relationship with yourself and who you see when you look in the mirror, but also the ripple effect of that and the story that's told throughout. So, you know, part of this hits a bigger point that I've been talking about a lot lately, Patrick, which is, you know, if if you agree with the premise that adversity by adversity, response by response, that is the ink with which we write our narrative, the human narrative, let alone our own personal one, right? So the question is, what do you want your pandemic narrative to be? What do you want your pandemic story to be? Because you're writing it right now. Do you want it to be, well, it was really, really tough, but we somehow made it through? Or, you know, it was really tough and we got hit hard, but, and it was never quite the same, but, you know, what can you do? Or do you want to say, well, we just, you know, coped and, you know, uh, did the best we could. We had to make some adjustments and, you know, we didn't, it was uh, blah, 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 blah. Is that, because that's most people's story. That's going to be most people's story. Or do you want it to be a story about something right, something good, something elevating that you and others did with this adversity that becomes a story that lasts beyond you? And it doesn't have to be this heroic journey but it could be the mundane stuff, you know? It could be like, you know why we have a garden? The reason we have a garden is because when this adversity hit, my grandmother, my grandfather, or when back when they were young and there was this global pandemic, they decided that one of the things they could do, not just for themselves, but for their neighbors, was just to create a, try and grow some good, healthy food. And they started passing out boxes of vegetables to people who they didn't even know. And ever since then, the garden has been a sort of symbol of life for us and of giving and, and, and of, of being good neighbors. You know, whatever the story is, I'm making it up. But every one of us has that chance right now. So there's that part. Mm-hmm. Now, Eric... Eric's an amazing guy. I just was spending a chunk of time with him two days ago. So he's very fresh in my mind. (laughs) I just did a podcast with and for him. Um, So Eric, funny enough, Eric has an organization called No Barriers. 
And the No Barriers motto, it's a nonprofit, uh, which I love so much. The No Barriers motto is what's within you is stronger than what's ever in your way, whatever's in your way. And that's really good. No, that's really is, good. That's, isn't that really good? That's and of course, so good. And, and Eric, you know, lives that every day. He was born with a congenitive eye problem. And by the age of 13, 14, he was 100% blind. His mother died soon after, and she was his rock in terms of emotional support. And he could have just crumbled and gone by the wayside, you know, become irrelevant. But he decided his sort of action traction was going to be doing the one thing that a blind person can do. They can touch and feel things. And he started with his bedroom wall and he started to learn to climb. And so he became the world's most elite blind climber. He climbed the seven summits of the world, including Mount Everest, 100% blind, became the world's leading blind athlete, blind. And, and he solo kayaked the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. He's done things that are so beyond our comprehension. And I was thinking about him because... I was actually, my last international trip before this all happened, I was in London and in, in, in uh, The Hague in Holland. And I went into this store and it, at the top of the bookshelf, number one bestseller was this Harvard business compilation called Mental Toughness. That's all these articles about mental toughness. And I just had the privilege of having one of the articles in this book. So I was blown away that this was their number one best-selling book right now. I'm like, no way. I'm overseas and here's this book. I can't believe it. And then I said to Ron, to my wife, when I was there, I said, still to this day, the mentally toughest guy I know is Eric Weinmayer. This guy, here's one example. And this is such a great metaphor for all of us right now. I was with him when he was doing this thing called the Subaru Primal Quest. It's the world's most elite adventure race. The top adventure racing teams in the world are there. He had never done one before. He's against the best in the world. You have four-person teams, three men, one woman, and they'd never raced together before. So they already have the odds stacked against them. It's like a 10-day race, 500 miles of wild combined adventures. You don't know, and, and challenges, you don't know what they are. There's no sleep. There's no clock. You just go. And if you're going to sleep, you sleep on top of each other laying in a trail or wherever it is. The first activity, because you don't know, it's on that, you know, global TV, is you're on the shores of Lake Tahoe in the Sierras. And it's a 14-hour, four-man kayak from one end of the lake to the other in strong headwinds with the waves smashing in the blind guy's face. <laughs> 14 hours, right? Yeah. So he does that. And at the end, he goes, well, the good thing about that nightmare is it's over. What's next? So one after another, here's the moment, Patrick. This is like day five with no sleep. They are going to, they know there's going to be a climb at some point. Hmm. To get to the climb, they have to cave from one side to the other side of the mountain. They have to cave under the mountain. <laughs> And so there's these just gives teams. Me the, yeah, it freaks me out even oh, thinking about that. Oh, it gets better. <laughs> it gets better. The best way to kind of, you know, process a nightmare is share it. So I'm going to share with you mine. They're competing against these other teams. So they're spelunking under this mountain. And I said, what was it like? He said, there's people in front of me. There's people behind me. Now, remember, it's 100% pitch black to him anyway. Mm -hmm. 
And it gets to the point where his hands are stretched all the way in front of him. He's laying down. His toes are stretched all the way behind him. He said, I had to let the air out of my lungs to move forward. It just freaks me out right now, I'm telling you. (laughs) And he was that way for hours. And you can't move forward. You can't move back. You just have to be there. Live with that hell, not knowing how long it's going to last and somehow come out the other side. And I thought, if a person can do that, is there any one of us who can't get through this pandemic and be 100% whole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, quiet your mind for sure. (sighs) Be present. And I just went, that guy is the mentally (laughs) toughest guy I know. That's crazy. That's totally crazy. Paul, how are you? And by the way, by the way, one of the great tips is anything that you personally lack, just find someone else who has it and write about them. (laughs) (laughs) Good writer. Study that. That's a personal tip I shared with you just now. So a couple things around in terms of, I'd like to ask you this. Do you have a definition for success? I do. For me, it's the degree to which you leverage and grow whatever blessings and talents and capabilities you have for the greatest possible good with whatever time you have left on the planet. Hmm. That's really great. I love that. Tell me about your, your own kind of personal routine. You know, are you a morning person, an evening person? I know, I know that you're very physical. You, you, you like a good workout. You know, that, that, that part of it, I know very well about you and Rhonda, by the way, the, the question, I guess, beyond the physicalness of it, and I don't want to take anything away, but do you meditate, do you journal? What else do you do? How do you look after your kind of mental, physical, spiritual, like what, what, do you have a routine that you go through in the morning or the evening, Paul? Hmm. Thanks for asking. I, I, I am very physical. I try to hit my exercise first thing and I try to, well, let me, let me rephrase that. First thing I do besides take care of the dog is Rhonda and I will sit and connect. We'll have a cup of coffee, cup of tea, often by the fire if it's cold enough and, and just talk about our day and, and, and be there together half hour, then exercise typically outside, um, hardcore. And I really believe in burn before you, you know, earn it before you eat it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I like to burn it off before I consume any food. Now I've been doing more intermittent fasting and delaying my breakfast to maybe an early lunch. And I find that's actually working to my surprise. Um, even with the calorie burn that I do, I do all that. Uh, Once a day, what I've been trying to do pretty regularly uh, is I'm actually a big fan of the Wim Hof, Mm W-I-M-H-O-F methodology. And Wim Hof is that guy, you know, the Iceman, right? Yeah, the Iceman, yeah. With the the cold plunge and the breathing. Are you doing the cold shower? Yeah, and I actually have been doing some cold immersion in the ocean and everything. And I I, I went to see the Iceman in Iceland Mm. live and I did the whole thing with him. And what won me over is if if you ask most people, how long can you hold your breath? You know, most people go, well, I might make a minute, right? So the first time I did, I I purposely came as a virgin into this activity Mm -hmm. live with him in this big thing. First time I did it, I held my breath for three minutes. Mm. 
And I went, whoa, what the heck is going on? So the, you know, the, the deeper science and physiology medically in terms of what this does for you, especially now in terms of immunology and, and energy and everything is, is really, really good. So I'm a fan of that. And for me, that kind of is a meditation. And then, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I try to, you know, convene with my wife and be together and have sort of a cool down period. I cool down the lights. I cool down our, our environment like you're supposed to do to help prepare your body and your brain for hopefully a good night's sleep. And to the best extent that I can, we try to do that. Am I perfect at any of these? No, but they're very meaningful and important to me because the energy flywheel is you got to expend energy to get it. And that matters more and more as we move on in life. So because I get to do what I do, I want to bring so much energy to people. So I do everything I can to optimize mine. You said something right there that just kind of hung with me for a second, which is the energy flywheel. You got to expend energy to create it. And in that little simple statement, I mean, it says a lot, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, when you, when you really think about that, it's, it's pretty powerful. The, well, you got to induce intentional discomfort, right? Sure. I mean, there's going to be times where it's cold. There's going to be times where it's dark. There's going to be times where you're tired. There's going to be times where you so don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, to literally do that, you have to do it sometimes in your least energetic moments and just pull it out and get it done, you know? Well, that's, yeah, that's a little bit of grit going on there. You know, the <laughs> big time <laughs> you talk about Wim Hof and, and, and I, uh, I, I'm now because you've done it, I, I'm, I'm going to get challenged myself to do the cold shower. I've done it, tried it. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't brave it. It's just, you know, I'm going, ah. Wait, 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 wait. Where do you live? What country? What country are go, you in? Listen, I moved to Vancouver. <laughs> Dude, I'm in California. I'm in California and I'm getting in a 50-degree ocean. Okay. And I can't believe it's a, it's an effective smackdown on my Canadian brother up there. Yeah, I'm but so no, happy. but it's, it's, you know, I could get in a cold ocean. I could do that. But there's something about a shower and I think it's the timing. In the morning, don't. Don't make me cold first thing in the morning. Are you are you jumping in the shower at six a.m.? No, seriously, are you? Mm. Yeah, and no, have you, you met Tangerine? Have you met me Tangerine? Because she sounds a lot like you right now. <laughs> You're such an asshole. Okay, fine, be that way. Um, so, okay, so we got to wind down here, but I always like to uh, finish up here. And, and gosh, we could go on for another time, and hopefully, I can talk you in being on the show again sometime. I want to uh, wind down with what we I, I kind of always try and have a little bit of fun with uh, you know my rapid fire questions here, Paul. And uh, so they're meant to be fun, but what is the book that you are currently reading or a book that you like to gift aside from your own? Lifespan. Who's the author on that? David Sinclair, the definitive guru on redefining how long we can live. Absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. Just completely throws all the assumptions about human lifespan and what it takes. Cool. Do you know, I want to share something with you before we go into the next question. This is about me, um, but was really cool. I was part of a uh, some research that was done. So there's in Calgary, they're doing some research on a heart and they really wanted to understand 
and so they were doing they're measuring triathletes and they're comparing them to average people and then in different age categories cool. but they but there was a certain qualification that you had to be and so a friend of mine's wife runs the program in Calgary and so she won me over when we were talking about it. I was over having dinner one night and we were talking about the program it was really cool and we were talking about working out and the difference between fitness and wellness and having all these conversations it was really quite cool and she said she said I could really use you some you know, use you for the program, but she said, you're not old enough. I go, well, shit, how old you got to be? She goes, you got to be at least 60 for that segment. And I go, I qualify. <laughs> she goes, really? Shut up. How old are you? So anyways, that was really complimentary. And I went, cool. Oh, totally. You, know, you look so, crazy young. Yeah, yeah. Stroke my ego. It was awesome. So then I went for the testing. So she was really excited about that. So they, they do an MRI, they do blood tests, they do all the things. Right. And, and so I go into the MRI, Stephanie got to be there, which is really cool. Cause she has a background and understands all of those things. And cool. so I got out of my MRI and the guy that was doing the test, the technician said, yeah. you know something, if I wasn't looking at his age on my computer, I would think that he was 50 years old. So I came out of that and she said, your heart she says, at, at 60, we would expect certain things and there's different mm -hmm. measurements they did do. And she said, there's none. She says, like, not even, there's zero. And so, wow, this Bravo. Went, you know what this went back to, Paul, which was really the foundation. You know, I've been, a, I've been trained at, I train at some level for many, many years. And, yeah. and although I'm not religious about it anymore to the degree I was, I, I've changed some of my conversation around, you know, fitness versus wellness. And, and so I stay active and I do all those things, but it really was foundational. And that's what I would attribute that to probably good genetics as well, but the importance of a really active lifestyle, being very conscious of breathing. I, I do, I do practice some of Wim Hof's breathing, by the way. I think it's awesome. awesome. You know, I think that's, and I've always been a breathing guy. He actually gave me a stronger context for what I believed around believing or a breathing, which was, which just gave me a stronger context for it and, and a methodology, awesome. you know? So awesome. I wanted to share that story because it was a good news story. You know, God, man, way to go. You can't fake that, you know? It's cool. You just can't fake that. I no. mean, that shows up. That's like accumulated effect of doing the right things over a long time. I And that's exactly what I think, too. It's that, you know, the good habits, you know, they show up later as do bad habits. You know, it's so, <laughs> right. Anyways, we, I digress, but I want to share no, that no. story with you. Favorite inspirational quote. Do you have one? It is in the flames of adversity that our greatness is forged. Mm, good one. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Well done. Favorite swear word? Ooh. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with like one I haven't used a hundred times in the past three days. Um, <laughs> Listen, my I would have to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 what's yours? No, I'm not telling no, come you. On. No, I'm not going to say that. Go ahead. Come on. I, I, I mean, if, well, listen, fuck is the word for me. It totally, it's got to be the F-bomb. I is. mean, you it know why? You know why? Because the best moment, this is like the difference between Italians and Americans. So you have the Italians during the pandemic and they're out on their balcony singing. 
fucking die in an opera. And everybody's like, hey, right? So in New York, someone tries this and they start, you know, singing off their balcony and this guy goes, hey, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so diverse, that word. You just use it in, in so many uses. It's like places. it's so boundless. I'm like, that, you, you can't yeah. do that without the word. You have right. to say the word. You have to. Yep. yep. Room, desk, your car. What do you clean first? Room, desk, or car? Yeah, what do you clean first? Because my wife spends more time in my room. <laughs> Without question. I want to stay married, dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can get away with my truck a little bit longer. You yeah, know? Yeah. Then when she gets in, she goes, really? Yeah. Okay. How about a favorite Netflix or streaming series, given what's going on these days? Oh, wow. You know, I was... I was blown away by Game of Thrones, of course, when it was on. It was just, there's never been anything quite like it. Right now, we've been uh, grooving on. I did like Westworld because of how sci-fi and, you know, all that kind of stuff kind of lost its way a little bit, but that was okay. We've been... Have you watched Ozark yet? Oh, my God. That's the one we watched last night. I was just going to say that literally like right here on my tongue. Yeah, yeah. Ozark, yeah. yeah. It gets a little yeah, that, little gets a little wild, but it's uh, it's actually it was very, dark. very good. Yeah, no, but it's good. It just yeah. takes you to a place that makes you really appreciate your life. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so speaking of appreciation, what are you grateful for, Paul? Oh, my God. I am so insanely grateful for the opportunity to be and do who I am and what I get to do and to share that journey with the woman of my dreams, the most amazing human being I know. I, I just couldn't be more grateful than that. I pinch myself every day because who gets to be me, right? And for that, I'm immensely grateful. And I'm grateful for you joining me on the show today. Grateful to have had the conversation and to reconnect and uh, certainly grateful and appreciate the time and what you bring to the table in this conversation. So. Thank you hey. very, very much. Well, I'm grateful for you guys, and I'm grateful to, for you to give me the chance to share a small piece of my life's work with uh, all you crazy Canadians yeah, out there. Yeah, very small, very small piece, man. Very small piece, and uh, but it was still, uh, still, I know it'll be very, very impactful for our listeners. So, hey, uh, thank you. It. It's been a great conversation, and please give everyone up there my warm best, and uh, really hope that we, you know, are able to navigate through this adversity in the best possible yeah, way and I'm sure uh, we we're in it together that's for sure that's for sure ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening if you found value in the podcast please take the time to rate and review and share with others share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you the listener if you have any comments suggestions or questions you'd like answered please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.